0: This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the beginning of February. And we have a lot of last journeys in this edition, starting on the 1st of February, 19.01, with Sissy the Countess of Denby's report on Queen Victoria's funeral journey. The Queen had died at Osborne on the Isle of Wight on the 22nd of January. I think you will like to hear of my going down to Southampton to see the passing of our dear Queen from Osborne to Portsmouth. I went on the Scot where both houses were embarked. We steamed out and took up our positions between the last British ship and the first foreign ships of war on the south side of the double line down which the procession was to pass. The day was one of glorious sunshine with the smoothest and bluest of seas. After a while, a black torpedo destroyer came dashing down the line, signalling that the Alberta was leaving Osborne, and from every ship both British and foreign boomed out the minute guns for close on an hour before the procession reached us. The sun was now at three o'clock beginning to sink and a wonderful golden pink appeared in the sky and as the smoke slowly rose from the guns it settled in one long festoon behind them over Hasla, a purple festoon like the purple hangings ordered by the king. Then slowly down the long line of battleships came eight torpedo destroyers, dark, gliding forms and after them the white alberta looking very small and frail next to the towering battleships we could see the motionless figures standing round the white pall, which with the crown and orb and scepter lay upon the coffin solemnly and slowly it glided over the calm blue water followed by the other three vessels giving one a strange choke and a catch in one's heart as memory flew back to her triumphal passage down her fleet in the last jubilee review. As slowly and as silently as it came the cortege passed away into the haze, with the solemn booming of the guns continuing every minute till Portsmouth was reached. A wonderful scene and marvellously impressive, leaving behind it a memory of peace and beauty and sadness which it is as impossible to forget we stay with uh, a watery scene as we go back to the 2nd of february 1709 and the finding of robinson crusoe well actually not crusoe of course but selkirk who was the prototype for defoe's crusoe selkirk was a shoemaker's son who ran away to sea and joined a band of buccaneers he was put ashore in September 1704 on the uninhabited Tierra Island in the Juan Fernández Cluster, 400 miles west of Valparaiso in Chile. Woods Rogers reports. Alpinus returned from the shore and brought abundance of crawfish with a man clothed in goatskins who looked wilder than the first owners of them. He'd been on the island four years and four months, being left there by Captain Stradling in the Sankpaw. His name was Alexander Selkirk, a Scotsman, who had been master of the Sankpaw, a ship that came here last with Captain Dampier, who told me that this was the best man in here, so I immediately agreed with him to be a mate on board our ship. "'Twas he that made the fire last night when he saw our ships, which he judged to be English.' During his stay here, he saw several ships pass by, but only two came into anchor. As he went to view them, he found them to be Spanish and retired from them, upon which they shot at him had they been french he would have been he would have submitted but chose to risk dying alone on the island rather than fall into the hands of spaniards in these parts because he apprehended they would murder him or make a slave of him in the mines for he feared they would spare no stranger that might be capable of discovering the south sea The Spaniards had landed before he knew what they were and they came to so near him that he had much ado to escape for they not only shot at him but pursued him into the woods where he climbed to the top of a tree at the foot of which they made water and killed several goats just by but went off again without discovering him. He told us he was born at Largo in the county of Fife, Scotland and was bred a sailor from his youth. The reason of his being left here was a difference betwixt him and his captain. He had with him his clothes and bedding, with a firelock, some powder, bullets and tobacco, a hatchet, a knife, a kettle, a Bible, some practice pieces and his mathematical instruments and books. He diverted and provided for himself as well as he could, but for the first eight months had much ado to bear up against the melancholy and the terror of being left alone in such a desolate place. He built two huts with pimento trees, covered them with long grass, and lined them with skins of goats which he killed with his gun as he wanted so long as his powder lasted which was but a pound and that being near spent he got fire by rubbing two sticks of pimento wood together upon his knee in the lesser hut At some distance from the other he dressed his victuals and in the larger he slept and employed himself in reading, singing psalms and praying so that he said he was a better Christian while in this solitude than he ever was before or than he was afraid he shall ever be again. At first he never ate anything till hunger constrained him partly for grief and partly for want of bread and salt nor did he go to bed till he could watch no longer. The pimento which burnt very clear served him both for firing and candle and refreshed him with its fragrant smell. He might have had fish enough but could not eat them for want of salt because they occasioned a looseness except crawfish which are there as large as lobsters and very good. These he sometimes boiled and other times broiled as he did his goat's flesh of which he made very good broth for they were not so rank as ours he kept an account of five hundred that he killed while there and caught as many more which he marked on the ear and let go. When his powder failed he took them by speed of foot for his way of living and continual exercise of walking and running cleared him of all gross humours so that he ran with wonderful swiftness through the woods and up the rocks and hills as we perceived when we employed him to catch goats for us. We had a bulldog, which we sent and with several of our nimblest runners to help him in catching goats, but he distanced and tired both dog and men, catched the goats and brought them to us on his back. He told us that his agility in pursuing a goat had once liked to have cost him his life. He pursued it with so much eagerness that he catched hold of it on the brink of a precipice of which he was not aware, the bushes having hid it from him. So that he fell with the goat down at the said precipice a great height and was so stunned and bruised with the fall that he had narrowly escaped with his life, and when he came to his senses found the goat dead under him. He lay there about twenty-four hours and was so scarce able to crawl to his hut, which was about a mile distant, or to stir abroad again in ten days. He came at last to relish his meat well enough without salt or bread, and in the season had plenty of good turnips, which had been sowed there by Captain Dampier's men, and have now overspread some acres of ground. He had enough of good cabbage from the cabbage trees and seasons his meat with the fruit of the pimento trees, which is the same as the Jamaica pepper, and smells deliciously. He found there also a black pepper called maraguita, which was very good to expel wind and against griping of the guts. He soon wore out all his shoes and clothes by running through the woods and at last being forced to shift without them his feet became so hard that he ran everywhere without annoyance and it was some time before he could wear shoes after we found him. For not being used to any longer his feet swelled when he first came to wear them again. After he had conquered his melancholy he diverted himself sometimes by cutting his name on the trees and the time of his being left and continuance there. He was at first much pestered with cats and rats that had been bred in great numbers from some of each species which had got ashore from ships that put in there to wood and water. The rats gnawed his feet and clothes while asleep which obliged him to cherish the cats with his goat's flesh by which many of them became so tamed that they would lie about him in hundreds and soon delivered him from the rats. He likewise tamed some kids, and to divert himself would now and then sing and dance with them and his cats, so that by the care of providence and vigour of his youth, being now about thirty years old, he came at last to conquer all the inconveniences of his solitude, and to be very easy. When his clothes wore out, he made himself a coat and cap of goatskins, which he stitched together, and little thongs of the same that he cut with his knife." He had no other needle but a nail, and when his knife was wore to the back, he made others as well as he could of some iron hoops that were left ashore, which he beat thin and crowned upon stones. Having some linen cloth by him, he sewed himself shirts with a nail and stitched them with the worsted of his old stockings, which he pulled out on purpose. He had his last shirt on when we found him on the island. At first, at his first coming on board with us, he had so much forgot his language for want of use that we could scarce understand him, for he seemed to speak his words by halves. We offered him a dram, but he would not touch it, having drunk nothing but water since his being there, and twas some time before he could relish our victuals. He could give us an account of no other product of the island than what we have mentioned except small black plums, which are very good but hard to come at, the trees which bear them growing on high mountains." and rocks. We return now to our theme of funerals. This is the 2nd of February's report in the Daily Telegraph in 1948 of the funeral of Gandhi. Standing beside the funeral pyre, I watched Mr Gandhi's remains cremated with Hindu ritual on the banks of the sacred river Juna yesterday About 750,000 Indians surging in a plain of river, sand, weeds and dust were being stemmed by troops and police shoulder to shoulder to leave an open space. In the middle of this clearing was a newly built platform of brick and mud on which again had been raised a couch of shining sandalwood logs. To the left of it a group of women chanted Hindu hymns with rhythmic clapping of hands into the microphones which amplified to the great crowd. Overhead, glittering aircraft swooped among the hawks to shower rose petals on the pyre. Amid shouts and mass salutations, the cortege arrived through the crowd bearing the body of Mr. Gandhi, which was draped in concreter tricolour and covered with yellow rose petals. Beside the body, as it arrived, rode Mr. Gandhi's third son, Mr. Ram das Gandhi. Earl Mountbatten, Governor-General of India, Countess Mountbatten and their daughter Lady Pamela, with friends and government house staff, were squatting on the ground near the pyre with ministers of the Indian and provincial cabinets and lifelong intimates of Mr Gandhi. On the platform itself stood Pandit Nehru, tight-lipped and haggard. Finally came the extraordinary scene as Mr Gandhi's frail body was laid on the pyre the crowd struggling for a foothold on the brick platform, the showering of flowers, the heaping of two-foot sandalwood logs by devotees now beside themselves, the officiating priest in a saffron robe jostled and pushed as he strove to tread to read the service. From the vessel of fire swinging from his hand, Mr Ram Das Gandhi put the first light to the pyre where, his, where the body was now invisible beneath the logs. As the smoke rose slowly at first, the flames began to dance above the whole eight-foot length of the pyre. Mass emotion gave way. Women threw themselves towards the flames or on the ground and crowds struggled to seize flowers, chips or dust to treasure. The din and confusion were amplified on all sides from the forgotten loudspeakers. This was a picture which none who saw it could forget. (laughs) And now back to the 8th of February 1586 for Robert Winkfield's report on the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. Her prayers being ended, the executioners kneeling desired her grace to forgive them her death, who answered, I forgive you with all my heart, for now I hope you shall make an end of all my troubles. Then they with her two women helping her up began to disrobe her of her apparel and she laying her crucifix upon the stool one of the executioners took from her neck the agnes day which she laying hands off it gave to one of her women and told the executioner he should be answered money for it Then she suffered them with her two women to disrobe her of her chain of pomander beads and all her apparel most willingly and with joy rather than sorrow helped to make unready herself putting on a pair of sleeves with her own hands which they had pulled off and that with some haste as if she had longed to be gone. All this time they were pulling off her apparel. She never changed her countenance but with smiling cheer she uttered these words that she never had such grooms to make her unready and that she never put off her clothes before such a company. Then she, being stripped of all her apparel, saving her petticoat and kirtle, her two women beholding her made great lamentation and crying and crossing themselves prayed in Latin. She, turning herself to them, embracing them, said these words in French, Ne criz-vous, je promets pour vous. And so, crossing and kissing them, bade them pray to her and rejoice and not weep for thou, that they now should see an end to all their mistress's troubles. And she with a smiling countenance turning to her men servants as Melvin and the rest, standing upon a bench nigh the scaffold, who, sometime weeping, sometime crying out loud, and continually crossing themselves, prayed in Latin, crossing them with her hand, bade them farewell, and wishing them to pray for her even now until her last hour. This done, one of the women, having a Corpus Christi cloth, lapped up three corner ways, kissing it, "'put it over the Queen of Scots' face "'and pinned it fast to the cool of her head. "'Then the two women departed from her, "'and she kneeling down upon the cushion most resolutely, "'and without any token or fear of death, "'she spake aloud this psalm in Latin, "'inter domine confido, non confundar in eternum, etc. "'Then, groping for the block, she laid down her head, "'putting her chin over the block with both her hands, "'which, holding there still, had been cut off, had they not been espied. And then, lying upon the block most quietly and stretching out her arms, cried, In mamas tuus domine, etc., three or four times, and she lying very still upon the block, one of the executioners holding her slightly with one of his hands, she endured two strokes of the other executioner with an axe. She making very small noise, or none at all, and not stirring any part of her from the place, where she lay, and so the executioner cut off her head, saving one little gristle, which being cut asunder, he lift up her head to the view of all the assembly and bade God save the Queen. Then her dress of lawn falling from off her head, it appeared as grey as one of three score and ten years old. Called very short, her face in a moment being so much altered from the form she had when she was alive as few could remember her by her dead face. Her lips stirred up and down a quarter of an hour after the head was cut off. Then Mr Dean, Dr Fletcher, Dean of Peterborough, said with a loud voice, so perish all the Queen's enemies. And afterwards the Earl of Kent came to the dead body and standing over it with a loud voice said, Such end of all the Queen's and the Gospel's enemies. Then one of the executioners, pulling off her garters, espied her little dog which was crept under her clothes, which could not be gotten forth, but by force, yet afterwards would not depart from the dead corpse, but came and lay between her head and her shoulders, which being imbrued with her blood, was carried away and washed, as all things else that had any blood on was either burned or washed clean and the executioners went away with money for their fees not having any one thing that belonged to her and so every man being commanded out of the hall except the sheriff and his men she was carried by them up into a great chamber lying ready for the surgeons to embalm her. And we finish with the Daily Telegraph's reports from the 1st of February 1965 as a nation mourns Sir Winston Churchill. This is by Gerda Paul. They place his body gently on the black and silver catafalque under the dome of St Paul's. Beyond him the cold, wax-white flowers of death. Before him the living thousands from all parts of the earth for a brief half-hour unite in sorrow. Our own Queen, King Olav of Norway, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands, King Baldwin of Belgium King Frederick of Denmark Constantine of the Hellenes, princes and presidents and uncrowned heads, representatives of a hundred and eleven lands, the funeral procession moves slowly up the nave. In front, a cross is held aloft, and the heralds and perservants come in their gleaming ornate array. Sir William, with Sir Winston's orders and decorations and banners, the Earl Marshal and the twelve pallbearers all precede the coffin borne on the shoulders of eight strong guardsmen. As Sir Winston's body is placed on the bier, the sorrowing black-coated family mourners who have been walking behind it settle in their places. The first of the four robust hymns loved by Churchill and so like him to have loved is Who Would True Valor See? Let Him Come Thither. The dean, Dr Matthews, reads the specially written prayer We shall think of him with thanksgiving that he was raised up in the day of our desperate need. Only Churchill will have chosen the American battle hymn of the Republic, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and the boisterous strong words lift the spirits with them as they saw. Courage and hope were Churchill's message, and courage and hope live in the surface. Fight the good fight with all thy might. In this hymn, General de Gaulle joins fervently... The Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr Ramsey, gives simple thanks to God for the resurrection of mortal man. After the National Anthem, the last post and revali sound. As they take him from St Paul's for the ever, the great congregation stands to sing the final stirring hymn, O God, our help, in ages past. The half hour of common memory and homage is over. It is fitting that Saturday is... Cold and grey. Against such a backcloth, Britain can best spill the ceremonial treasures of the kingdom like a jeweller's diamonds on dull velvet. With native genius and practised skill, this island race brings all the ancient honours from its coffers to accompany Sir Winston Churchill, its great and glorious chief, on his last journey, to give him the mightiest commoner's funeral of them all. It is as lavish, splendid, generous and unstinting as himself. Sad but sublime. A rolling pageant through the heart of ancient London with sacred swirl of great coke and cape, glint of helmet, wave of plume and boom of drum. From early yesterday, thousands of people queued outside the churchyard at Bladen to file past the last resting place of Sir Winston Churchill. At one time, the queue was more than a mile long. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Mattias. www.soundimage.org.